Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the social meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. So today we're going to be talking about TV criticism and what it means to be a TV critic in the era of peak TV and overanalyzing everything and everything being political. And we have two amazing special guests in the studio. And why don't you both introduce yourselves? I'm Nina Shen Rostogi, and I've been writing about Game of Thrones for Vulture for the last six years. I'm Ingu King. I am a staff writer at Slate. Um, I do not think about science ever, but I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about television. Nina and Ingu, what do you see as the job of the TV critic in 2019? <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Just like a huge question, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a very varied job. Before I was at Slate, I was a TV critic at MTV News, RIP. And that was like about a couple of years ago. And it was like a very interesting transitional period in TV criticism, because I think a lot of the ways that a lot of people think about TV criticism, if they are like a really avid reader of it, is like they have this idea of someone like Alan Suppenwall or Matt Sellersites, who at least like five years ago, spent a lot of their time writing recaps. Nina will, I'm sure, have a lot to say about this, but I feel like the TV criticism culture has sort of like moved past recaps a little bit. I think that you have a lot of critics who sort of do like the very like journeyman, like tradesy sort of TV criticism where you get like, I don't know, like three episodes or six episodes of a new season and they review what they can of that. Sometimes you will get a full season, which is always my favorite because then you can actually like comment on sort of like the complete arc of a season. And then I think there's a lot of TV criticism that looks at one very particular episode, probably what you would call like a very special episode. An event no. episode. Yes, mm-hmm. without like those cheesy like 80s connotations. And then I think you can have a lot of think pieces about sort of like this is a significant episode or storyline because X, Y, Z. And so I think one of the great things from a TV critic's perspective, if you are in a good enough position to do so, you can pick and choose what type of coverage you want to have. From a reader's perspective, I honestly have no idea what people are interested in reading, but I write generally what I'm interested in. When I think about the role of the TV critic, it's it's shaped by the fact that I've had a very unique and strange and maybe kind of peripheral relationship with TV criticism in that I was a full-time journalist, but for the last eight years or so, I've had a different day job. And my one kind of consistent critical activity has been writing, whenever Game of Thrones was on, writing a weekly piece about it for Vulture. Which Um, were really good, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, they're really great. (laughs) Kind of a lifeline if you're watching the show. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's, that's, that's so nice. And some of this changed because 
obviously by the time the show ended, there was not just peak TV, peak Game of Thrones criticism. There was so much coming out every week. But I really thought about it as every week. How can I help a reader engage more deeply with what we just watched? Whether that's right. thinking about oh, like, let me draw some connections to some episodes in the past that you've probably forgotten because you're not sitting here thinking about this show as much as I am, or underlying something that would some sometimes like stick in my craw about an episode. And I'd think like, oh, what, what is that? What is that trying to like tell me? And that's always what I thought I was trying to do. And because it was the same show week over week, I was really thinking a lot about that relationship between what I was trying to put out and, and who would be reading it was interesting when Ingu was saying like, well, I don't really know what audiences are getting out of TV criticism when you're kind of interacting with commenters and stuff. What was your impression of what people wanted out of it? Again, I think that that changed. I, I definitely felt more in these later seasons that people were, I think, like Ingu said, hungry for things that went beyond the plot recap. They wanted to have maybe like language or ways to talk about what was annoying them about those final seasons because right. it was such a like shared and intense annoyance to rage sort of spectrum. So I, I definitely think that through the end, there was that kind of sense of, of wanting to just sort of have a space and a time to have a kind of deeper conversation for something they'd spent a lot of time with. I think we're thinking about a lot. I think one of the things that I found really gratifying about the end of kind of doing those Game of Thrones essays was I was an English major. I was in a, I was like a performance studies grad student. I like nerding out about this stuff, but it felt like everybody was kind of excited to nerd about about craft and about the relationship between the author and the audience. And right. so I felt like criticism kind of made a, a space for that. You know, it's interesting to talk about recapping or discussing or analyzing Game of Thrones after every episode, because that is something that only happens for a few shows nowadays. Like, I feel like there's a few shows that are important enough that everybody really needs to talk about them the day after they air, versus what you were talking about, Ingu, of like, you get the whole season and you kind of analyze the whole season. And I mean, what is the most basic unit of TV analysis these days? Is it the season? Is it the episode? Is it the whole show? I mean, I've been around long enough to remember like Television Without Pity, which was like the Uber recap site where we would just, you know, somebody would write like a 10 page, like literally like 10 page analysis of a single hour of television where they would just go through every single minor plot point and just riff on it. And it was like kind of insane, but also a weird guilty pleasure. So have we just completely gotten away from that now? Is, is it not even meaningful to talk about individual episodes of television unless it's like one of these huge shows? I mean, going back to like your original question, I think I have definitely read and probably written essays that are devoted solely to like one scene. I think like, for example, when Sansa was raped in season five, was it mm -hmm. like a lot? You know, that was like three minutes of television, maybe. But People really spent a lot of digital ink on that because it was really worth talking about, mostly to rag on the show, which it <laughs> completely deserves. I forgot your second question. I mean, just basically, <laughs> what, is, yeah. what is the main unit of TV criticism now? Is it the episode? Is it the scene? Is it the season? Is it the whole show? I would hope that it's essentially whatever is worth talking about. Um, I think that's the really great thing about TV criticism right now. Like, you have so much content and you can break it down into like so many different pieces that it's really nice to have like the flexibility to like talk about however much of a thing that you want and hopefully there's a large enough readership base who that's interested in like whatever unit you're interested in talking mm -hmm. about. 
So can you evaluate a TV show based on one episode? Or is that kind of like, okay, I'm evaluating the episode. But if I want to evaluate the show itself, I need a whole season or I need the entire show before I can make a, a real critical judgment about its success or I don't know. I mean, I think that and obviously, this is something I think when you're writing about episode by episode, you think about a lot. But I think there's lots of different ways to read a text or, you know, a mm-hmm. show, you know, like um, from from like, you know, he was saying like very small, like a scene or I, the New York Magazine has that series. Um, I think about this a lot, which is just about private memes. There's sometimes a single line or a single image. Um, and you can draw that scope, I think very broadly, right? Um, I've read, <laughs> to stick it with what I know in Game of Thrones, you know, there have been a lot of great essays about a single scene. Um, and they're also like wonderful essays that connect it to a broader social phenomenon or, or you know, bring in the books as sort of another object for mm-hmm. it. So I think it, um, I think even if you're thinking about criticism as trying to ascertain whether something is a successful piece of art, which I think is one kind of criticism, um, you know, I think that can also be sort of done on a moment-to-moment basis. I don't know. And then you can sort of take like a whole show into account. Like I think at the beginning of the most recent season of season eight, uh, which was the last season of Game of Thrones, I did like an essay about Tyrion. And a lot of that was sort of like going back to the pilot, like seeing how he was presented. And then essentially how the show sort of lost interest in who he was because it decided midway through at least that it was going to pursue like a different set of thematic interests that had a lot less to do with Tyrion um of course like the show's thematic development and sort of (laughs) collapse on itself like in the last few episodes but that's another discussion yeah maybe some tv shows you can really look at them episode by episode and kind of evaluate the success of a single episode but in other cases it kind of is weird to say, all right, I've watched three episodes. <laughs> I think this is a great show because I can think of a lot of shows where the first three episodes were awesome. And then by right. the end of the season, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, why did I like this? Well, that you was know? like um, the last show I think I wrote about for Slate, which was the first season of The Killing, which had this particular everyone like was really into it at the beginning and then by the end everyone seemed to have a collective sense of like what is what has happened to this show that we'd anointed as this this darling of the season but I also think that something about episodic television is that it's for the most part created in chunks and it's delivered in chunks right so seasons, yeah. yeah seasons or like the week the episode and the week and it takes you know at least in the model where you're releasing an episode every week they are in some ways designed to be consumed over a long period of time and in some ways the time between things you know um i, I feel like is part of the experience of it so i think that in in some cases it's it's it seems entirely relevant but then maybe in the same way that you know, we read a Dickens novel now in, in its entirety and, and think of it as an entirety. But when it was right. serialized, like, yeah. how are people understanding it then? I mean, I think that uh, to bring it back to Game of Thrones, which I know the best, I mean, I even think about the different ways it felt to be writing about sexual violence in that show when Me Too kind of happened right in the middle of it. Right. And so those early episodes and the moments that we were consuming them then felt very different than the end. Like, I remember writing about, I think maybe it was like a season three episode where does Jamie rape 
Circe. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that was God. I I wrote about that. Yeah, and, and it was really I think upsetting. We all wrote about yeah, that. yeah, we all wrote about that. And I remember also just like the reaction that I got. Like you know, I think one of the comments on the piece was, "Oh yeah, I got to that part and and then I scrolled up and of course this was written by a woman." There was like a oh. there was more of a hostility around that kind of argument. And then by the time I got to writing about the last season, there was there felt like there was much more of a, an appreciation and understanding that that was something that was going on and it was something we were having to grapple with as we enjoyed the show. So so I, I do think that kind of chronology and that spread out is at least essential to how I was engaging with that show and how I wrote about that show and how I thought about that show and how I'll think about that show in its multiple seasons as a, a piece of culture. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, we I think we were talking about Handmaid's Tale a couple episodes ago, and how that unfolded historically, um, because that was a show that was made during the Obama era. And it was made with the assumption that we would kind of continue to have relatively progressive politics in the United States. And then when it came out, it suddenly had this whole different meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it's gone on, people have gotten kind of fatigued and like they don't want it because they're like, it's too dark, it's too <laughs> upsetting. Are there shows that you guys have gotten sick of or that you think are really overrated that like critics have just decided are like the thing that we need to write about, but you're just like, why can't we write about something else that's like less well-known or? I think that at least like within the time that I've been writing about TV, the only other show where I was like, why do I have to pay attention to this was House of Cards. Because that show is bad. Like it's just like a legitimately <laughs> bad show. And I I think I binge like four seasons in like one weekend or something. And oh I just my thought God. like, why am I doing this? Um, because the show was really bad. And you know what? History has proven me correct. Yeah. <laughs> but people did obsess about that show. And they it was, sure did, yeah. yeah. We're going to have a quick intermission, and then we're going to come back and talk about the politics of TV in 2019. So what kind of themes are you all both seeing in the Trump era on television? Like, how do you see a television show as addressing some of these topics around fascism and racism and sexual violence and so on and so forth? I mean, I guess I feel like with the timetable that most productions run on, we're probably just seeing TV now that was like made like with when the president was in office. And so I feel like it's hard to say. I feel like there is definitely this like uh, blossoming of like resistance TV, I guess mm-hmm. you would call it. Like I think For The sure. Good Fight is like a very good example of a TV show that essentially sort of like writes to like newspaper headlines. But I don't know, like I don't want to think about that stuff. What do you think, Nina? <laughs> I, I was curious to know what trends you've been seeing. I, you know, I watch a lot of superhero shows. I'm just going to admit it. And like, there was a period a little while ago when both Supergirl and The Gifted, which is the X-Men show that, that aired on Fox and was just recently canceled, both Supergirl and The Gifted had like almost identical storylines in which there was a kind of militia group that were like secret kind of like underground, mostly white dudes, hunting. In the case of Supergirl, they were hunting aliens. In the case of The Gifted, they were hunting mutants. And there was like 
provocateur characters who were going on television and stirring up hatred against mutants or aliens in the case of either of those shows. And it was very, and there was a lot of imagery around immigration. In fact, Supergirl introduced this place where aliens who are coming into the United States go that's basically Ellis Island, but it's called something else. It's called Shelly Island, I think. And it has special machinery that like dampens your superpowers while you're on the island so that aliens can be assimilated without having their superpowers go off or something. (laughs) These really kind of intense themes about immigration and hatred of the other and witch hunts and, you know, these kind of militia movements that are spurred on by some kind of Fox News host kind of Mm -hmm. character. And both shows had pretty much identical storylines, which, you know, in both cases ended with tolerance and diversity winning out over these forces of hatred. And it felt like very much people consciously trying to comment on this moment we're in. Mm. There's also been a lot of stuff around sexual violence and, and, you know, other kinds of topics as well. Yeah, and I think like on shows that are ongoing, like say The Good Place, you can start to see themes coming in that are clearly reflecting what's changed politically or socially. So not to give any spoilers for people who haven't gotten completely caught up with The Good Place, but there's a recent episode where they're basically grappling with how capitalism prevents people from being good. And that's a very new kind of theme. Um, It's been a really, really long time since mass media has had explicit critiques of capitalism. Like, I would say since the 1930s. (laughs) And, you know, or there might be critiques of, like, big business, but it wouldn't be a criticism specifically using the word capitalism. Um, And so that, I think, is really interesting. I think that we're seeing a lot of that. I think we're seeing shows trying to pull in more diverse perspectives and kind of realizing like, oh, we don't have any women in the writer's room or like we don't have any POC in the writer's room and like maybe we should change that. So I do think that even shows that are kind of just going on now that maybe were developed at a different era are changing. And also looking at what's getting greenlit now too, I think it's like Killing Eve opened a door where people were like, oh, you could have like strong, competent women (laughs) leading a show that's a murder mystery. Like it doesn't all have to be like Homeland (laughs) where like the female lead like has a nervous breakdown every five minutes and is constantly crying. And so like that's what we think of as like female power is like oh it's barely barely able to do it guys fuck that i I think we (laughs) should know that like the main innovation of killing eve is that you have a master criminal and master sort of investigator who want to fuck each other desperately and they are both women right yeah Mm -hmm. because i think we've had that before with like two guys who clearly wanted to fuck each other desperately sherlock yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Oh yeah. My god, yeah. And so, I mean, what that's is happening in England right now? And like, how do we bring that here? I, I mean, I, unfortunately, what's happening in England right now is terrible and awful. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I yeah, we selectively bring stuff. So <laughs> I wanted to ask more about diversity. You know, in particular, like one of the things that's been happening in the last five years is that there has been a much more conscious effort to incorporate more diversity in television. How is that changing the kind of stories that are being told? And is there a thing where there's more diversity in front of the camera than behind the camera? And is that a problem? I've definitely, as somebody who's been primarily a viewer for the last several years, have noticed it and felt it more. I'm Asian American. And actually, it was almost exactly 10 years ago that I wrote a piece for Slate about how at the time, there were suddenly all of these South Asians on TV. And for me, as somebody who's who's half Indian, I noticed it distinctly. And uh, I remember in the interviews that I did with TV writers and actors, a lot of them, one part of it was 
was this behind the scenes? A, a lot of the most visible South Asians, Mindy Kaling, Aziz Ansari, had come up as writers, so they also had a hand in shaping how they were shown. You had an increasing number of, because of sort of the history of Asian American immigration, you had more people who, even if they weren't Asian, had grown up with other Asians. So there was a lot of, and also you had a lot of actors who had done their time in building up credits, sometimes credits that were not the most flattering and, you know, woke roles they could have played, but it got them the credits that could then get them bigger roles. So there was a really interesting kind of, in, when I reported that nine, ten years ago, there was a really interesting um, behind-the-scenes industry element to that. And I'm definitely noticing it much more that, um, you know, talking about The Good Place, I was like, there are two South Asian women on this show? That blew my mind. It was like, right. I was like, okay, we, we have we have arrived. I say that facetiously, but but I've definitely noticed as a viewer who is and who didn't even kind of, I think, realize how hungry I was to see more people and a wider range of, you know, like the other big thing about Killing Eve for me is Sandra Oh. I yes. love seeing Sandra Oh. Um, Same. Yeah. And, and Ingo, I think it was your piece when you wrote about that we now have our own diva and Constance <laughs> Wu. I mean, I think that that's, that's really meaningful for me as a, as a viewer to see just the, the the numbers and the diversity within the quote-unquote diversity. So I feel that very much as a viewer. I'm going to start with like the Constance Wu thing because I think it's actually like very illustrative of the point I want to get to. I think everybody more or less knows about like the whole Constance Wu controversy where she was like really pissed that Fresh Off the Boat was renewed for a fifth season because it was, I think, pretty obvious she was not interested in being on the show anymore. And so she had like this like Twitter tirade. And basically, I wrote a piece that was like, well, good, because like now she is being a diva, which we have not had like an Asian American version of before. I think a lot of representation sort of happens in these phases where like, usually the first one is about like how respectable and like identifiable and like relatable like these others are and then you get to like a second phase where you're like well what if like they were also a human being with like some (laughs) flaws and then i feel like the final phase is like well what if they're also monsters just like (laughs) men or white people just fyi i'm talking with white people so just letting you know we can be monsters (laughs) it's like the whole like anti-hero trend in tv that was like very popular like 10 years ago was very much predicated on like what if this like white guy that like you immediately identified with was like actually kind of like a fucking dick (laughs) like the fact that we are able to have (laughs) some version of that like in constance Mm -hmm. Wu being ungrateful for her fresh off the boat opportunity like Mm -hmm. that's not like the worst thing because like now you get to actually have now you get to actually inhabit like the full spectrum of humanity Mm -hmm. and it's not a monster dumb that's connected to the fact that she's yes Yeah, it's like it's full circle in the sense that, you know, with those representations in the prehistory of the of what you're describing, where it's like the other is just a monster. Like it's like Mm -hmm. white people who are like, oh, well, here's some people of color. Well, they're probably monsters or they're the maid, whatever. (laughs) Like either way, they're they're off to the side. 
And then, of course, once you have representation happening, you can kind of come full circle back where it's like, no, no, I'm a self-made monster. Like, you know, like I'm not, this is not a white person who made me. It's like, you know, actually just fully inhabiting like, you know, a selfhood. I feel like we're close to being done, hopefully, with like that first phase, the like role model phase. And I think like the art that really interests me when it comes to representation is like the second phase of like the flawed characters and then like the third phase of like you know like a reflection of who I personally am and so I am really looking forward to like that area being explored at greater length and I think that we're seeing some of it I think Mindy Kaling is like astounding and that she basically like leapfrogged like over the first two phases and just like became full-on monster when she created the Mindy Project because that character is heinously unlikable and yet she is just like you. (laughs) A relatable monster. Yes. 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 And so I hope we get more versions of that. Yeah, I do feel like Sandra O's character in Killing Eve is also kind of a relatable monster Mm -hmm. because she's really messed up. Like, there's a lot of fucked up things about her. And, like, and that's what's awesome. Like, she gets to just be messy. Mm -hmm. And I also want more hot Josh chance. You guys watch Crazy (laughs) Ex Girlfriend. Hot Josh Chan was very close to my heart. So, we want to see objectifying men more (laughs) a diversity of men Mm -hmm. yeah just like general characters who are not either a model or a monster so Ingo I saw a piece you wrote I guess last fall where you were kind of arguing with something that Wesley Morris had written about like the purpose of criticism and like this idea that like criticism based on representation is like the lowest level of criticism or that it's not useful and you were kind of taking issue with that I think what he specifically was saying it was like this like kind of meandering piece but I think what he was trying to say was that essentially because the priority of representation is so foremost some people are having trouble saying that a show a black show let's say like insecure which is the example that he used that people were afraid to say negative things about insecure which like i have you been on twitter like there's tons of people saying like x y and z about insecure and so i was like a really annoyed with that piece because like he gave one piece of example which is basically he went to like a dinner party and basically like his friends or whatever said that people his friends said uh, they were a little hesitant to say anything negative about insecure i gave like a counter example in my piece and that was basically about crazy rich asians which definitely also got a lot of really positive press and then like a very significant chunk i thought of like people attacking it from like whatever angle that they were interested in so like i think one of them was sort of about like how the movie overrepresents like the Chinese population of Singapore at the expense of like non-Chinese peoples in Singapore which I thought was like a great point I don't think it's like super relevant to the movie like on a certain level because it's not really about like Singaporean society it's about like the 0.1% of Singaporean society like and mm-hmm. a lot of that is like Chinese my point being even if you have like a super big event representation moment like this, people aren't just saying like whether it's good or bad based on representation. People are able to really get a lot of different ideas into a piece. And I think like the thing that I really was heartened by 
with regard to Crazy Rich Asians, even though I was so sick of like Crazy Rich Asian think pieces after a certain moment, was that you could really see like all of these like really diverse perspectives coming at the movie and sort of like judging it based on like not the criteria of like is it good for Asian Americans Mm -hmm. or whatever but sort of like coming at it from like a bunch of really different fascinating angles Mm -hmm. and I think like that was something that like the Wesley Morris piece missed because the representation conversation at least like with regard to Crazy Rich Asians was not about like whether the movie was good or bad for Asians it was about like well like how does this movie deal with like gender or class or Singaporean society or whatever and the fact that like we are able to even like expand the conversation to that level I think is thrilling Mm -hmm. because we haven't really had that before like until the last I don't know couple of years and I think that to go back to this idea of you know what is criticism in this political age I think not just Trump but also just in this area where you have so many more voices we have so much more awareness of what is problematic and what might be problematic and we've I think those of us who you know are extremely online or are extremely into you know reading tv criticism kind of understand that and so I think that some you know criticism that I really love can sometimes help me understand different things I'm trying to hold in my head at one time around a piece like crazy rich Asians it was incredibly powerful for me to see that on screen, you know, Asians in love with Asians, the glamour of an Asian community and society, um, while also having a real queasy feeling about the sort of levels of capitalism <laughs> and luxury on display. And and I think that criticism in this political moment can kind of help us understand how those things relate, which I also think is a big part of understanding art in the kind of post Me Too or current Me Too movement. How do we think about the artist and the art and our relationship and our reaction to it? It's all kind of in a soup. And I think we're all more aware of of that. I think Me Too is like also like a really great example of how I guess like because we have so many websites and we have so many writers this ongoing conversation of is sexual assault bad but like rather it was like a series of conversations about like the different manifestations that sexual assault can take and like what are the sort of like power dynamics that we should be on the lookout for and so it's nice that we can like get into like the nitty-gritty the nuances of it yeah i was thinking as as you guys were talking about a couple of other examples like always be my maybe and also okay this is going to sound like a stretch but I'm going somewhere also the HBO show looking which I don't know if you guys saw that but both of them are shows that are set within a minority community but they both deal with class really interestingly and I feel like that because there's this sort of okay there's this understanding that like okay so I'll always be my maybe like the characters are like Asian American but there's this huge class difference between the two characters and that somehow feels more visible but I feel like it's something about intersectionality allowing us to talk about types of identity that we haven't really talked about before and looking I thought was really interesting in that way too because it's set within the queer community in San Francisco particularly the gay male community and issues around class come up and issues around race come up a lot in ways that you almost never see outside like a Jane Austen movie (laughs) where like everybody's like talking about like who's going to inherit what and who has what kind of money and like is this a match that's economically viable and like all the men in that show are super aware of like who's rich and who isn't and like what does it mean to date a poor 
boy versus a rich boy. And I feel like in Always Be My Maybe, that's like a huge piece of like what's going on as she comes back to town. She's like, well, I'm super fancy. And like this guy is just like, what? He's installing air conditioners. He's kind I, of a mm-hmm. quote unquote loser. He's <laughs> like, a, he's working class. He's not even a loser. But he's, he's a like, loser because he's, he's, because he's, he's working class. No, even because though, his, his music career has never mm-hmm. taken off and yeah. he doesn't have to take the right. initiative to go play at the fancy bar across yeah. town. It is this interesting look at, yeah, like, does ambition change class or change the way you think about right. class or status? Yeah. Yeah, he's working class, but also he doesn't have any ambition. Yeah. He has that song where he talks about, like, I started at the bottom and I'm still at the bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I loved his yeah. songs. I think that yeah. was like the, the best Part of, the the part of the movie yeah for sure i've been listening to them a lot on youtube <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so fun I, fact i have also punched keanu, <laughs> punched keanu Reeves? What, what was the context of you punching keanu Reeves? yeah we need kidding. to know yeah. <laughs> oh no okay i, I wouldn't believe you i was like I mean, this I is gonna be like the greatest podcast ever <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a secret point. story <laughs> i've heard he's really nice though so like i've also heard that yeah you might there might be some people in tv you would want to yeah. punch like i could make a list but we're not going to talk about it right now but yeah i do love the anointing of keanu reeves as our new internet boyfriend yeah <laughs> very i think it's he's better it's very I, satisfying I, I think it's better than ryan gosling you know I'm oh say it. yeah <laughs> he's Plus, a better choice like, you yeah. know he saves puppies like that's the whole point and all in those you know anyway whatever so uh thanks so much for joining us dina and ingu could you tell us where people can find you online um yeah you can find me on twitter at at nina shen you can find me also on Twitter at Ingu King. So thank you so much for joining us, Nina and Ingu. This is such a great conversation and we're so grateful to have you here. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. We also are on Twitter at OOACpod and on Facebook as Our Opinions Are Correct. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher and Libsign and Google podcasts and apple podcasts and everywhere else all and if the you places like us, the podcast please leave a review it makes a huge difference we really appreciate it thanks so much to our sound engineer veronica simonetti at women's audio mission thanks to chris palmer for the music and thanks to you for listening we'll be back in two weeks bye, bye. bye. bye.